Hi, Phil. How you doing? I'm great. We, Long time no speak. Yes. So we're back at it. We took a year off. And yeah, just a year. Just a year. Uh, no big deal. So what have you been up to in a year? Oh, the same old, same old, uh, and all sorts of new stuff, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Uh, Me too. I'm right now in the middle of recruiting actors and uh, for our graduate program. Are you doing the same thing? I days? am, yeah. No, I'm a grad program director, too, and so I'm chasing actors and directors and trying to get everything settled and, and budgets and those kinds of things. So well, This is a welcome relief from that, in fact. In spite of the fact that we have been away from it, I, I've really missed it, and I feel like this is a... Uh, we get so little time to actually get this moment to be geek out. Yes. Uh, I really appreciate it. So we've been working our way through the lexical sets and the consonants. And the archive of past glossonomias is pretty complete, but we have a few left that we haven't done. And the one that we've got selected for today is price. Price. And, you know, Phil, I actually, sometimes I I get a little uncomfortable with that choice of lexical set word because Mm -hmm. for so many accents, price is different from, say, pride. And so, and price and pride kind of nicely go together. Um, So I I often refer to pride sometimes when I use it, partly because my students here in Canada will, of course, have Canadian raising on price. And so uh, pride helps us to notice the difference. Yeah, the lexical set words were concocted by J.C. Wells in 82, I guess is when his book came out. And there are a few of them that speakers of other accents, other than General American and RP, uh, look at askance. Uh, For example, I, I look askance at palm because it doesn't represent my realization of that word. Mm-hmm. But we're sort of stuck with them. We uh, are. Yeah, and, so it's uh, just sometimes that it's uncomfortable because rather than say price versus pride, he'll say price one, price two. Yeah. Uh, and th- that just kind of, mm, I feel uncomfortable with that. Well, in, in a way, these lexical set words, and it might be worth checking back in with this whole concept, they're, they're not keywords. They're not, they're simply a label for a category. And a group. Uh, we could have an abstract name for them. Yes. Subprime three, and uh, th- then we'd have no confusions. Uh, but obviously, phonetics and phonemics and phonology and so forth are all fraught with confusion uh, because of the way we perceive language. Right. So we're stuck with it. We are. So, uh, Phil, the the history of I, uh, these words weren't always pronounced with an I, were they? Yeah, uh, this is interesting. I, I Somehow, uh, I, I'm responsible for language history in this podcast, even though I know we both take an interest in it. Uh, I was taking a look at the way this diphthong developed, and I noticed that there was in, in Middle English and Old English an I 
that was used in words like day, which were pronounced die, uh, or I think that's probably frontier die. And so there, there was a sound there, and it sort of faded away, and as you know with the word day, changed into face. Uh, there was another set of words, and if you take a look, for example, at, at French, let's take the word prime, for example, good English word, right? Uh, but it comes from a French word, and the French word is prime. Uh, and so that really, in a, in a way, represents more closely what the English pronunciation of that word was, prime. And uh, as we've seen when we looked at fleece, those E sounds are sometimes realized with a more central beginning. He, fleece, prime. Mm. So you can imagine a, a set of... Uh, English yokels speaking French saying, that's prime. Right. And that's not far off of the way many people realize the fleece set. And if you just let it go a little bit further, drift a little bit further towards the center, you get prime. And if it drifts even more open, you get prime. And so price, to go back to our lexical set word, uh, drifted uh, diphthongized, drawled its way into the diphthong I. I think listeners of the show don't need an explanation of a diphthong, do they? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, you know, though, it, I do explain to my students that diphthongs are a bit like um, uh, vectors in math. And half of the group go, groans, ugh, <laughs> not vectors. But then when I remind them what vectors are, that it's, you know, a, a line that is described by its beginning point and end point, we, yeah. we reference the beginning point and end point, but really it's this line, uh, a yeah. slide between two points. And, and th so we, we often think about diphthongs in terms of a, its symbology or representation with a symbol for its beginning and its end. Um, but uh, it, it is a little journey of a sound. Uh, yeah, and that's a great way of, of thinking about it because that journey could be different between those two points. Indeed. You could linger a long time at your origin point and just barely get to your termination point or vice versa. Right, go smoothly between the two. So sticking with the uh, history of this I sound, th this really took place from like 1500 on, this sort of gradual shifting. And uh, it, that shift in a way isn't over. You can see that price, as it's realized all over the world, is, is really different. There are a lot of variations on it. And, and part of that is, as you say, the, pardon me, <clears throat> the vector is variable. And so there are a lot of possibilities, and that might explain why there are a lot of varieties. But also I think it's because it, it tells the story of how the lexical set has changed historically. That we're watching it move from one source to another. Hmm. I think at the moment there are so many scattered possibilities that it's certainly not necessarily heading to one place. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, that, that's one of the strengths of English, I suppose, is that we can tolerate so much variety. 
um, and variation. As long as we're consistent within a, a, a regional group, um, people will understand what's going on. But um, it does seem to be one of those um, lexical sets that has a really broad spectrum yeah. of choices. Um, and uh, I have to say that the sound I associate with I is sometimes appropriated for other lexical sets, right? So sometimes face gets the sound that I think of as the price lexical yeah. set yeah. sound. Um, so that I sound can vary from sort of an I sound in one place to a very I sound in another. Very, very far apart, really, if we look on that Yeah, if you map them it. out, and it's difficult to map on a 2D surface because, as you say, they're vectors, but you could put choice in one place and face in the other, and price is sort of floating in between those two, and sometimes it overlaps into the... Uh, I'll take price into face here. Let's try this. Price, 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 price. There, I'm in it. The other direction, price, 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 price. Somewhere in the, that boundary territory, you, as you and I define it, perhaps, we've definitely go, crossed over a line. Mm-hmm. But in some other accent, it might be a different boundary territory where we think, no, we're no longer in price anymore. So these sort of Venn diagrams, multi-purpose Venn diagrams, many circles, many overlaps. Um, So if you hear a word in isolation, just one word with a diphthong that sounds like I, you you might not necessarily be able to place which lexical set that pronunciation actually is attributed to in its original speaker. I want to bring up the idea that... uh, Even within a speaker, the price vowel diphthong could vary. Mm. uh, That uh, you might not always hit the same target. And that's usually because of the phonetic context. And you can see that historically in a word like decision and decide. Mm -hmm. The, The two different, they're the same word essentially in a different form. But decision, because of where it is in the word, where the stress is, and what the consonant is afterwards, stayed short. Yes. Stayed closer to the E beginning, decision. The other one, decide, because of the phonetic context and the way other forces in English work, it got drawn out. That initial part of it, decide, changed it into a, a different diphthong. But you can see in the spelling and in the etymology that they started in the same place in a way. Mm-hmm. And that variation within speakers is still still true. We could point to how price is realized in a particular accent, but we have to recognize that it might be realized variably. Right. So that's called a morphological alternation. Awesome. Yes. Uh, yeah, I was searching for uh, uh, calling it price allophony. I just love the word allophony, and we've got it with goat allophony. But really, yeah, there's there's variation that is conditioned by the phonetic context, but in this case, it's conditioned by the the morpheme, by the the meaning of the word. There's a variation in the word's meaning that's represented phonetically. Right. Uh, allophony comes from allophone, right? The... Yeah, and so you could... It's a great word 
but it points to the fact that something sounds different. It's it's a twin, uh, uh, a fraternal twin, I guess, because it's not identical. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, the, the best example I should probably turn over to you of this of this variation, uh, not the morphological variation, but the variation based on phonetic context, which I guess you could call phonetic conditioning. I think that's one of the words that's used to describe this variation. Uh, the the example I'm thinking of is Canadian raising. Okay, so Canadian raising is probably most famous in the mouth lexical set yeah. because we get that out and about kind of sound in a very strong rural working class accents in Canada um, but uh, uh, it also applies to I and uh, most Canadians are actually completely unaware that they do this they, mm -hmm. uh, they you have to really point it out to them for them to notice that uh, I followed by a voiceless consonant what we call a fortis consonant uh, is different than I followed by a lenus consonant or a, a voiced consonant or in a free setting where it's followed by nothing. Um, so if we compare price with pride, if I say price and pride, um, one of the things that happens is that we get a vowel shortening as a yeah. result of that fortis consonant. And that shortening... Uh, certainly, um, you know, the way I've kind of always explained it to myself is that, uh, that that gives me less time to move my articulators. And so I am more likely to sort of take a shortcut uh, rather than a fairly open stance for I, I'm going to, I, I just move my mouth less. There, there is a, 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 not quite as much travel, but there is still travel in, in that, um, the starting place is higher, and the yeah. end place is also higher. Um, it's not just the beginning point that's shifted. So, so that could that you happens give me a in slow Canada. Example of those two, uh, the sure the unraised and the raised. Sure. So uh, unraised, ride, and raised, right. Yeah, I totally hear that it's even difficult for you to lengthen that one because it is in its identity short. Mm -hmm. And and that shortness, uh, the, the thing that is unacknowledged, but I think we all get intuitively as English speakers, is the length is going to change based on what consonant we're heading to or whether we're heading to a consonant or not. There's something in our sense of how long we ought to take to get there or how much energy we need to conserve in order to explode an unvoiced consonant. Uh, and, and for some, uh, you know, stop plosive consonants, really we just stop them and we don't explode them. So mm -hmm. uh, could easily say ride or write and not release those consonants and you would know which was which, even if I didn't have Canadian raising, based on the length. Yeah. So Canadian raising and other features that we'll talk about in other accents are kind of a function of length, which is a function of the phonetic context. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to think of an example in which, in a sentence, the, uh, the unraised price, pride, would be, in terms of meaning stress, short. And would it be affected by Canadian raising? Uh, Mm, so it would be unstressed 
Yeah. Uh, so we're trying to think of an example. Um, so well, if, um, uh, I, I don't want the uh, I, I don't want to see if it's right or wrong. Uh, but I have to use the word ride instead of right. Um, oh, yes, you don't yes, no, you're going to drive a ride. <laughs> yes, drive or ride. I mean, even though if, if you take the example of writer, mm -hmm. you're going to make a distinction between somebody who writes and somebody who rides, mm -hmm. even if it's shorter because of that word, writer. And rider. Yeah. Writer and rider. <laughs> It's difficult for me to intuit because I don't really make much of a distinction there. So I don't have that built-in connection. But I, it does seem like it's something that's just built into the phonetics of the word. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to follow those rules, not be influenced by the stress of the word in the sentence as much. Does that seem right to you? I think so. So that's certainly uh, a thing that's happening not just in Canada, although we call it Canadian raising. It happens in other places in, you know, in related areas of the United States, in New sure. England. The Atlas of North American English uh, states unequivocally it happens in Philadelphia, eastern New England, and the area known as the North. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know where the North is. Uh there's an interesting thing here in terms of the argument about where it comes from. Or So you could say that it's a raising. That's sort of built into the, the phrase. Uh, these Canadians and, and fellow travelers are raising some of these diphthongs. But you could also say that it's a failure to lower hmm. because the whole history of price has been opening and lowering. So... Somewhere in the middle point of this phonetic journey was price and pride and writer and writer, and they were all there. And then some of them, you could say, continued that journey. Right. In some accents of English, we get that, that the still the I sound ha mm -hmm. is the, the, the place for both sides of this, uh, you know, the followed by voiceless consonant or not, uh, the, they are the same. There's still this I sound. Um, whereas in places where it's continued to shift, we've got I and I or I and I. So there are three possibilities in that journey. Either the accent has not gone any further than I, and so it's unlowered, or there could be partial lowering of some of those sounds, price and pride. Uh, you can tell I have to think before I make it happen. And then <clears throat> the fully lowered people who've done everything, price, pride, completely open. Show-offs. Yeah, exactly. Or Overachievers. Uh, so, good. That, that explains that, I think, pretty well. There are other allophonies, other variations that occur in other accents, though, and they do seem to follow this same pattern of the, the phonetic context, that it's the lengthening of the diphthong that makes a change. And I'm thinking particularly about southern smoothing of the diphthong. Mm. Now, smoothing is a term that we hear, it's not about peanut butter. Um, mm. 
but it, it, it has to do with uh, a sort of a reduction of the diphthong quality. It becomes more of a monothong. So as, as a, a diphthong gets lengthened, the journey uh, of, towards the second element often gets shortened. And over time, the journey gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and ultimately we end up with just a monothong. So what was I becomes I, I, ah. And so we end up smooth to the point of a monothong. There's another thing that you were doing there too, which is lowering that second element. So I want to set that aside mm. temporarily and, and say that we're only talking about in that vector how long you stay in spot one. Mm. before moving to spot two. Ah, uh, right. And that does seem to be variable based on the same principles of as Canadian raising, that I might say, price, but pride. And and there are some Southern accents that do make that decision and some that don't. If I, there, there are certainly great areas of Texas where it's all smoothed. That's a nice ride. Uh, wide and white. Uh, and... Y- it's so you're still those... getting the contrast of, of <laughs> uh, length because of the voiceless consonant on white, uh, white yeah. but, you're, but you're still uh, smoothing them both to the ah. And this is one of those features that uh, true Southerners will hear in an accent and detect some failure. So they'll hear somebody say, you're quite right. And they'll, it'll immediately tip them off that there's something amiss because it hasn't been, this distinction hasn't been observed. Yes. I wonder if that's true of Canadians and Canadian raising. As you said, it's something that uh, sometimes people aren't even aware of. They might be able to hear and go, oh, something's off, but they yeah. wouldn't be able to put their finger on it, I suppose. Um, so this is an interesting point for uh our ongoing conversation about how accents are, uh, are don't have a moral character. Uh, th- these variations are not right and wrong, uh, and some accents, which are not prestige accents, have more variation than the prestige accent. So there's no inherent clarity, except for the Canadian and the Southerner, uh, the Southern U.S. person, there's, there's a greater distinction that isn't present in the upper-class accent. So we have smoothing. We have Canadian raising. Uh, there are certainly some accents that, do, uh, that don't make these distinctions, but their realizations are all over the map. And I guess you could say that we could divide these into accents which change the nucleus, the main part of the diphthong, uh, changes to the nucleus, or changes to the coda, which is the second part. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could put smoothing into the category of changes to the coda and raising in the category of changes to the nucleus, although, as you said, both parts of it are really raised in Canadian raising. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for accents that don't make a distinction, I I guess we could start with where that nucleus might go. Mm -hmm. The, uh, uh, an interesting thing that I noticed in the Accents of North American English um, documentation is that they, they carefully mapped out differences in uh, the vowel height of the nucleus compared to the frontness or backness of mm-hmm. the nucleus. <laughs> and basically they found that there was no 
connection in terms of height to um, regional uh, variation ah. that they could not um, assign a consistent uh, application of vowel height as a difference as long as they took the uh, the place where Canadian raising could happen. So it was only followed by voiced consonants or in a free setting with nothing after it. Um, the, the height made no difference. It was really only frontness and backness that ultimately made it. It made a difference to the perception? Uh, a perception of regional difference. So they could see patterns of regional difference. By There were differences in height. <laughs> but in terms of mapping it, only frontness, frontness and backness and, was signal, but height was noise. But yeah, height was noise because it was basically like a random scatter plot. Um, so let's see if we can maybe demonstrate a little bit of that, because I know that when we get into the deep woods of geekery, some people don't follow along. So I'm going to try and vary my price height, the height of the first part, the nucleus. Price, price, price. Am I doing uh, maybe some frontness and backness there? Yeah, your first uh, first price was pretty back, right? <laughs> so if we want to say we stay in the, the furthest yeah. forward element of the the yeah so we're starting price yeah price 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 you get into <laughs> and then price, we're into face price right uh but if i say in the middle price 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 there's a huge then i'm moving from accent to accent you are that's really interesting because there are certainly variations that we hear or we perceive that don't go into the that's a different accent bucket, but actors are varying all of those. And so it, it can be confusing, but you can create a, a different character within the same world uh, by making adjustments that don't change the accent, mm -hmm. but they change something. Something. Yeah, right. and, and I do think that, uh, you know, some shifts of frontness and backness, certainly within cer some accents, are more tolerated. So we can move I back to I, I, fairly comfortably in North America. Mm. If I'm saying pride, back like that, pride, you could probably get away with that as well. But if, if an, what we perceive as backed and starting to round, pride, starts to creep in, and eh, that's not going to work in North America. Maybe in some parts of Newfoundland you might have so a, a rounded So the salience order. of the shift is different depending on the listener, too. It is, of course. Yeah. So that nucleus, the first part, uh, uh, let me just see if I can go around the chart and we'll see if we can detect where I'm from then. So I'm going to go <laughs> as close to face as I can get. Uh, uh, I'll think of a sentence. That's a nice tie. Uh, that's a nice tie. <laughs> that's a nice tie. Right, and so where the heck would that would be? I uh, Sort of upper Midwest feels like yeah. nice. Wis Wisconsin. The phrasing of the second element might be having more to do with that. Right. All right, now I'll take it down. Nice tie. And even all the way, as front as, and down as I can get. Nice tie. That's a little back. Nice. Nice tie. Uh, then, centering. Nice tie. Just and on I, nice. Pardon? <laughs> yeah, I, your tie wasn't as centered. 
Ah, so maybe I'm doing some Canadian raising. Indeed. <laughs> maybe it's just because we talk about it. Uh, that would be really interesting to discover that I do make that variation, but I'm just unaware of it. So it's a, a production difference, not a perception difference. I wouldn't be surprised mm. or surprised. Uh, so if I go back, but don't do any rounding, I'll get nice tie. Nice tie. It's interesting to me because there's a place in the middle where I'm Californian. Nice yes. tie. Yes, but if I, I take it back any further, nice tie, then I'm into New England and I'm about to go over to England. Yes, nice tie. And then if rounding comes in, nice tie, that, that to me takes us to England, Australia, New Zealand. Nice tie. Uh, and probably somewhere in the center but open, nice tie is more Irish. Nice tie, yeah, right. I think actually, if I could go to Scotland, nice tie. I could go closer to face uh, nice, without really nice. raising that second element. Yeah, you'd you'd have more of a difference though, right? In Scotland, nice tie, right? Because tie is going to be more i, and nice oh. because it's got the s. Nice is going to be much further forward. Nice tie. So that's the first element, and boy, we can make a huge difference there huge. Uh, and we still recognize it as as price uh, then if we look at the second element again just changing where the target of that vector is uh, we could get it really tight nice <laughs> nice <laughs> that's <laughs> a little expressive there uh, but there are certainly people who have a very tight second element uh, then we could just lower that nice, nice. Sometimes my students get a little confused about the lowering of I because depending on how you draw the chart, mm -hmm. it is not above A. Right, because but, it's on a vector between schwa and E, isn't it? Yeah, So, but you could really think of a more abruptly or more uh, dramatically jutting vowel chart in which e are, uh, uh, that it is above a right yes their territories are pretty close they least. are so you'll often see the diphthong the price diphthong written in in some descriptions of accents as a uh, lowercase e as an a price 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 and that's really about that lowering of the i. Yes. Uh, I don't really think it's going to go any lower than that without kind of disappearing completely and, and smoothing away. So you could imagine price, which has some e in it, and price, in which it goes away completely. And I, I suspect that there may even be a slight shift, but we hear none. Yes, it's, it's similar to when you're doing, uh, you know, uh, scansion facts, and you try to make two syllables equally stressed. We're so used to hearing iambic pentameter that we'll assume that the second element is actually slightly yeah. more than the other. Um, that with a with a thing that's heading towards a fully smoothed monophthong, 
we're going to assume that that's what it is, even though there may be a slight off-glide towards eh, for instance. Ah. Yeah, and, and we can be misled by the phonetics of things. We can look in a book and say, oh, it says price, and, and we'll give equal importance. Right. But in actuality, price, price, just the tiniest little hairs that yes. we, we perceive the vector, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So that sort of price, that's a nice tie, is more sort of Yorkshire, I like cocoa. Uh, I wonder, too, if there's any variation, any Canadian raising uh, detectable in those accents, in, in Yorkshire accent, accents that have an I a lower second element. Hmm. Is the first element always the same? And I really don't know. Certainly there's variation within each speaker, uh, variation moment to moment in that one speaker. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether that's signal or noise. So we've got like. We could change the first element and the second element and have a rounded first element, or and a lowered second element, noise, noise, tie, pie. And that's more characteristic of New Zealand. Uh, and some of it, I think, comes from Cockney shifts. Mm-hmm. Is it likely that we would ever get a situation where we sort of stretch it in both directions, where we go to a rounded backed or and all the way to an E ending, oi, would there be any instance where we might say, Well, know, you know, when you see it sort of written out, oi, uh, oi, it sounds like a sort of stage accent. Yeah, that's yes. so extreme. Moi. Oi, loik, poi. Yeah. Uh, and Even I, if I, you're sort of calling to someone, you wouldn't <laughs> ever go that far, I doubt it. Well, here's a great example of... Uh, this diphthong, uh, the the common Cockney greeting, oi. Right, is, but that's a choice vowel, right? Not a. Uh, historically, it's the word hey. <laughs> but you drop the age, oi, 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 and it jumped ship. So, <laughs> really, I think I so. Did not, so. I did not know that. So. I, I don't know if that's the way. I mean, I might. That may be a folk etymology that I've invented, but it mm. seems to make sense to me. But it, you're right; it now resides in the world of choice. Well, here's how we'd find out: in multicultural London English, do people still say "oi," or do they say "ai"? I think they say "oi." <laughs> so it's jump ship. It's changed yes. from being uh, a price to being a choice. Yes. Now, I, I had always assumed that it was a shortening of oye, meaning listen, right? Oye, oye, that, you know, the, the town criers. I, I like my term. version better. Mine's more, I don't know, Latinate, right? Yes, so it's, yes. It's clearly fancier, and that must make it better. <laughs> so, so have we covered all the regional variations of, of Englishes? I, I think I'm so. Sure, I'm sure it's not possible that we could have covered them all, but we've certainly done a good, uh, you know, grand tour. I do see the, on my little list of notes here that what I've seen described as uh, 
the lowered second element seems to be occurring in New Zealand and South Africa, and that does make sense. Mm. That we get price, 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 really closer to e than to i, uh, with variation on the rounding in the beginning. It seems like New Zealand is rounder than South African. But again, there's variation even within speakers. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we've covered the numbing variety of English price variation. Uh, I think it might be useful to talk about how the diphthong, and I'm doing... Un- Air quotes. Yes, so they're inaudible, I'm sorry. Uh, the diphthong, I'll try to make it more audible, in other accent, in other languages. Mm. Uh, for example, in Italian. So you you could say, well, I just heard this guy say, stai zitto. So stai must be a diphthong. It sounds just like price to me. But it's not described that way. And it's that's described as two phonemes next door to each other. Exactly. So uh, an Italian or an Italian linguist would say, no, there are no diphthongs. There are two consecutive vowels. And in practice, you you may be able to detect in some Italian speakers uh, a sound that's indistinguishable from an English I. Right. But that doesn't matter because for them, it isn't a diphthong. It isn't a single syllabic identity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's it's Because in a diphthong, the second element is non-syllabic, Right. Yeah. Whereas here it is syllabic. So if we take the the um, Italian American actor Danny Aiello's name, he's got three in a row: Aie, yeah. Aiello, right? Of course, we say Aiello, uh, and we're thinking Aiello. Um, so I, I I don't know whether that e becomes sort of a boundary Aiello in Italian or not. It, it's it's so mind-bending for me to be told that something that I hear as a diphthong is really a sequence of two, when the realization is almost identical. But that's the way it's conceived of, and therefore you, you listen to the people whose language it is. Yes. Here's, here's a similar thing, but kind of backwards. My son came to me the other day, and he said, um, Daddy, what does I-S mean? And I said, I-S. Can, can you give me an example of uh, uh, wh- where you have heard this? I-S. That's right. <laughs> you mean I-S. I-S. That's right. Ah, yes. I-S. That's right. That's genius. I-S. And he had heard that as two letters, I-S. Well, that reminds me of the clever little book C-D-B. C-D-B. Uh, C-D-B? in which uh, a sequence of letters represents a sentence. So uh-huh. there's a picture of a B, and you see the B, and it's called... It under Under it is the letter C, the letter D, the letter B. Right. Uh, what's interesting to me about that, and that reminds me of another point about the phonetics of all this, a lot of times you'll see the price diphthong written as the sequence A followed by a, a J symbol, a Y. So we're being told there that it's the consonant approximate, the palatal approximate, y, ay, ay. Phonetically, that doesn't make any sense to me. 
but it's not a phonetic representation. Exactly right. Uh, it's a phonemic representation, so we're looking at things more broadly. Uh, and that the idea is that the vector heads in the direction of that closure. Yeah. I and the real phonetic realization of that phoneme is uh, it depends on context. It depends on the letter that follows, as we've discussed. So, in a way, I think the point of a phonemic transcription in that way is perhaps to step away from the phonetic realization a little yeah. bit and to differentiate. So, whereas you and I are using lexical set words as a means of discussing the phonemes, by using these uh, what seem more like spelling conventions to represent them, perhaps adds a layer of distance between the phonetic realization and its phoneme. And um, if you use a J or a Y is American. Yeah, uh, people will use often. By doing that, you're drawing a big circle, a big loose circle around a lot of different realizations, and that does allow you to talk about how the whole thing behaves, or and, and not to get hung up on the details. The particular detail that your son is bringing to your attention is great because you could detect the difference between I S and I yes. But you might not make that distinction unless you had to clarify for somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, you have two things that you're going to say. Which one is it? Is it ah yes or ah yes? <laughs> they might be phonetically identical. They and you'd have be. to make a phonetic change to make the phonemic uh, underlying uh, information clear to a person. So the, the phonetic realization is about how close the dorsum of your tongue comes to the palate... I, yes. And also, when it happens, ah, yes. But those variations don't necessarily happen in connected speech. Context tells us what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wondered whether the cartoon voice that was saying ah, yes, probably had some feature that made it seem more like I-S to... Know at the time, but it could be juncture. I yes, <laughs> that little gap in there tells me where the syllables are separated, uh, or oh. how close I get. Ah yes, I yes. I think you probably would have had to have been speaking fairly rapidly. I yes, I yes, for it to start to sound more. Uh, That's really cool. So. In Italian, we have uh, something that's phonetically very similar to I, but is phonemically not price. Well, it wouldn't be price because these lexical sets only refer to English, mm -hmm. but it isn't the diphthong I. Right. And but I there, guess are... there are a lot of languages that make that, have a sequence of vowels, like Japanese. Is that. Would that be two different more? Yes, they would, yeah. Uh, so, Aikido. Aikido. Ai. Yeah, Aikido. As opposed to Ai. In my research, I ran into uh, Samoan, uh, which <laughs> I had not encountered any Samoan before. Uh, and perhaps if we have listeners uh, who are familiar with that, they can correct us. Uh, 
but what was being taught to me in the online resources I saw is that there's a phonemic distinction between these two, uh, they didn't call them diphthongs, they called them vowel glides, which seems to me to indicate that they're still identified as two separate phonemes, but that they glide together. And the difference was between my and my, my, my. It, it, I don't know if I'm accurately representing that, but when I do it, I can barely tell that I'm making a difference. You know, this makes me think of, like, multiple words for snow. Um, yeah. That if you only have one word for blue, uh, and there's aquamarine and blue, both of them are blue. Uh, and if you perceive... Can you perceive a difference between I and I? Yes, you can, but they're not significant to you if you don't really think of them as being different. But for um, Samoans, they are significant. Right. Because they're two different. There's a phonemic distinction. Yeah. So for us listening to it, meh, it all falls within the price category. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm very phlegmatic today. <clears throat> Uh, probably taking a year off. I haven't spoken in a year. So. <laughs> uh, so that was really interesting to me, that those differences, which would just be regional variations in the diphthong that would be almost indetectable to an English speaker, were two different words to a Samoan speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're also obviously... Diphthongs in other languages that are diphthongs, uh, like in German. Uh, I'm completely drawing a blank on a drei. Word. Pardon? Eins. Eins, yeah. Or, or Zwei, ein drei. Egg. <laughs> and that's almost identical to the English realization, although it feels slightly tenser in the second element to me. It may be just that I'm not a German speaker, and uh, it takes me more attention to do it. And apparently, German arrived at that diphthong the same way we did uh, through the Great Vowel. They had their own Great Vowel shift. Uh, As a side note, German had a Great Vowel shift too, but they had a spelling reform, so it's not so obvious. Uh, right. So they respelled all those words so they made sense for the new pronunciation. And the reason we're aware of the Great Vowel Shift is that we see all these words spelled with I, that every other language in Europe is going to pronounce as E, and we pronounce them as I, because the language changed and the spelling didn't. Right, and the other languages didn't keep up. Yeah. So, so German... Norwegian, although the, their opening element is higher, like I, and I see it written at least on the Wikipedia page as a diphthong. Oh, here's a thing we haven't talked about. Hmm. The symbolic representation of diphthongs. Oh. You well, mean apart from, ap- apart from like the A- A-Y thing we were just talking about. Exactly, but which was phonemic and not phonetic. Right. So the most basic uh, and most common realization of the diphthong, I, is pretty darn close to print A followed by small capital I, ah, 
it. And then you have to, well, you don't have to. Uh, you could indicate in some way that the second element is the coda of the diphthong. You could just leave them be and say that Ooh. sequence is the diphthong. And if I meant them to be two separate vowels, I'd put a syllabic break mark in between them. A period, in other words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and the very common practice, is to put a brev mark, a little half moon. Uh, what's a better way of describing that? It's like a little cup. A cup, yes. A lovely crucible above the second element. Uh, and if you're familiar with scansion, it's the same mark that you would use to say, this is the unstressed syllable. And so that makes a lot of sense because the second element of this falling diphthong is shorter. It's briefer. It is. The other thing you could do, and I've been getting more into this practice and I'm, I regret it every time I do it, is to put a non-syllabic mark under the second element. And, and why do you regret it? It's just a new thing. And... <laughs> I know that students I taught five years ago will look at that and say, what are you doing? <laughs> so I'm changing my practice and right. sowing confusion, that's all. Right. Well, I mean, the fact is that we're a moving target, right? And f the use of the IPA is always in flux. I think people yeah. better get used to the expectation that it won't be the same five years from now. And they better get today. used to reading up and keeping, keeping up to pace. Right. And uh, probably one of the most influential, even if it's not the most uh, authoritative uh, sources of information, Wikipedia uses that pattern they now. Sure do. So, and so um, the, a lot of people turn to Wikipedia, and that I think we should at least prepare them for that possibility. What's great about this shift, when I'm not regretting it, is that it's a reminder that the symbols mean something, they're not automatic they're communicating some vital piece of information. And in a diphthong, there are two interesting pieces of information. One is that these two things together form a, a single unit of syllabic meaning. And the other is that that second element is behaving differently, that it's short. So I suppose theoretically, if I wanted to be super strict, I would put a brev mark and a non-syllabic mark but soon I'd be lost in a cloud of diacritics and uh, I couldn't see the symbols anymore. And uh, a lot of word processors can't handle that many symbols, can they? One thing that is useful about the brev mark is that you could stack those brevs on top of each other and say the second element is particularly short, which mm. tells you something about the vector of the diphthong. And if you put two syllabic marks, two non-syllabic marks, you wouldn't be saying anything meaningful. Right. Yes, you can't get any less non-syllabic. <laughs> yeah. Right. More so, unique. I think that covers the phonetics. Uh, just to be clear about the variations that we were talking about before, uh, we could change the first element from a print A... Uh, we could raise it up towards the ash. We could move it back towards a script A, or we could round it and turn it into a uh, turn script A. I think that's. We, or, could, we could go to a hut, I. Yeah. Or yeah. to a schwa. I, yeah. 
The second element is either all the way up there, the dotted I of fleece, or it comes down towards the small capital I, or all the way down to the printed E, A. But I, well, no, I think I have seen the epsilon sometimes used in transcriptions for a really low second element. Or perhaps if it was coming from a more backed uh, nucleus, so mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I, yeah. so I, I, uh, you'd have a more front, back to front shift than a open to close. It's interesting now that I'm thinking about the overlap of some realizations of goat, nigh, nigh. That second element is really like a barred I. But there's an overlap, price, nigh, nigh price. But this, I still think, even in that accent, the price second element, the coda, is fronter. Yes. Typically, so you're, you're comparing uh, O, yeah. goat, with price. And sometimes you get similar thing with mouth and price, right? Yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, so the second element is pretty darn front and, and getting close to an I. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, there might be a little bit more rounding in some cases, but often there isn't. Um, but typically what happens is that as one moves into the territory of the other, they shift. So one's going to be more I and the other's going to be more I. So yeah. the, the, a, as they become more alike, they, I think they find ways of differentiating themselves. It's as if they have a mind of their own. Hmm. Um, And they don't like company. They don't. They they like um, to put up fences between, you know, what what is the Walt Whitman thing? Fences make good neighbors? Yeah. Because the whole point of having a phoneme is that it allows you to distinguish one thing from another. Uh, There's one thing that I didn't mention before that I'll throw in here as a sort of unrelated piece. It is kind of interesting the way Mouth and Price behaved together historically, that they were both monothongs and that they drifted and shifted to new places. So Mouth and Price were Mouth and Price. And if you look at where those first elements moved to, you could say that they switched places, that Mouth, 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 went forward towards a, and that right. price, price, price shifted back towards the back. Uh, it looks, it's easier to see on a, a chart with a, with a line. But I, I don't know if that's actually the case, because you'd have to say that those are the proper ending points of those two diphthongs. And there are people, there are plenty of people who put the beginning points of mouth and price in the same darn place. Yes. So they haven't shifted over at all. Eric, is that all we have to say about price? If we think of other things, we can do another show. Well, sure we can. Because now we're doing shows again. We're doing shows again. (laughs) We're not going to make any guarantees that it'll be less than a year till our next episode. But we're going to try. We're going to try. It's been a lot of fun, that's for sure. Indeed. And uh, And, uh, uh, what's uh, do you recall what's on our list for next time? I I don't. Let's see if I can find it. It Um, would be, logically speaking, a consonant next. And uh, 
one possibility is uh, a journey through uh, an entire row of consonants on the chart, or to take a look at some consonants that are not really used in English at all. I, yeah, I, th I think uh, that was our plan was to, I'm, I've, I've lost my episode guide um, uh, well, somewhere. Uh, we'll find it after the show, but yeah. that, that we, will be, we will definitely be looking at consonants next time around. And to our audience, thank you so much for, for coming back. Yes. And uh, we hope to be continuing this conversation. And thanks indeed for, for the comments that we get, that it's, it's nice to know that somebody's out there listening. Uh, and is. for the first time, I'll tell you, this year I uh, assigned the podcast to my students. Did you? Yeah, I thought, well, they don't get enough of me blathering on, so they need to listen to more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did you get positive feedback? Uh, yes, in fact. I, I think that this is a different context. And so we're able to drill down a little deeper. Uh, we connect more concepts than I might do in the regular run of a class. Mm -hmm. It's always good to take a stab at information from a different, uh, take a different slice through it, because you'll yes. see connections that you might not have seen before. Well, if people want to email us, they can reach us at glossonomia at gmail.com. And uh, we love to hear from you, so please we, we'd, we'd really appreciate an email. Excellent. All right, Eric. I'll see you next time. Next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.